Saying low, Apple Music. This episode is going to be a fun one, but not as fun as it is when we're not on the record. Myself and Mark Ronson have known each other for a very long time. And, you know, you don't get into this whole sort of, I don't know, music industry business thing necessarily expecting to make friends with the people that you meet. But in the case of Mark, it was pretty instant. We have very similar taste in music. We grew up listening to the same kind of records. You know, we have the same kind of heroes, mutual friends and pretty similar senses of humor. So if you can't make friends out of that box of tricks, then I don't know what. So we've had many, many conversations off the record and a few on the record as well. But this one was really different because it centers around Mark's brand new television series on Apple TV Plus, which is called Watch the Sound. So obviously I sat down and I watched this series before we spoke and it actually showed Mark in such a different light to me. I'm used to him producing writing, recording these amazing records, doing incredible DJ sets, live shows, but actually seeing him in a host capacity as somebody who was diving very deep into a passionate subject with real curiosity and eliciting those kind of responses from, from people that he knows or people who have inspired him, which was for me as a fan and a friend, really inspiring. The series itself, Watch the Sound, is amazing. Even if you're not in full geek mode, you'll take so much away from each episode. He dives into different innovation points throughout the history of music, really hyper-focusing on each one, you know, from drum machines through to samples, amplification, and the whole thing is one entire experience watching it start to finish is really fantastic. So this is going to be an interesting one. We put a lot of the familiarity and the in-jokes to the side and we just dive into the subject because it deserves it. Myself and Mark Ronson, it's Watch the Sound, the interview right here on the series. Mark Ronson is producer and creator and host of a brand new show called Watch the Sound. I can say this as a whole, it's a, you know, it really is a wonderful watch, Mark. I mean, you're someone who's a good friend of mine. I, I feel very comfortable saying that in front of the world. Um, and I've known you a long, long time now. But uh, hearing you being able to and watching you being able to kind of dive into your passion to this degree was just a joy like watching you get get that involved in something that we hear the result of all the time, but we don't really get to see how you feel in those private moments. And it was beautiful. And so my question to kick this off, bro, is is how was the experience for you making what I can only imagine was your dream TV show? I mean, it, that's exactly what it is. It is my dream TV show. And I think when we started out, Kim Rosenfeld, came to me as executive producer of the show and was like, I want to do a show, a TV series. Apple had just launched Apple TV. I want to do a TV show that's a bit like, he was. He referenced his TED talk that I'd done about sampling because he was like, you know, obviously I love music. I know what sampling is, but I never knew the minutia, the ins and outs. I never realized what a thread it is, not only through music, but just as a sort of like, we live in a sort of sample-based culture anyway, right? That's what TED Talks do usually. They take your thing and they lend it to some big picture. And he was like, I want to do a TV show that somehow does that it's informative about music it's fun it's like the people the heads that know will still watch and enjoy it and then people who don't know anything will be you know engrossed and they'll feel like they learned something and it's entertaining so that's that that was just where we started and so then he hooked me up with morgan neville this incredible director who had done a lot of stuff i love like 20 feet from stardom and won't you be my neighbor and a lot of stuff and we just started to dream out this show what it would be how we could split it into episodes and after a lot of like 
hours and hours of brainstorming and rambling and talking around it. We were just like, let's do six episodes, six subjects, reverb distortion, synth sampling, drum machines, and auto-tunes, and talk about how they revolutionized music and talk to the people who did your favorite stuff on them. So what didn't make the cut? Out of if you if you've created a tight series of six, you know we all know that there's there's a lot of ground that you could cover next, or you could have covered on this series. So what was the one that didn't make this series that you really were excited about, but you just you just didn't perhaps have the time or the or the headspace to be able to cover it as well? I think there's probably so much like what I don't know about music could fill a, an anthology of TV series, but I think these were the things that I could not necessarily talk the most expert about, but we could talk with the most passion about because they've somehow threaded in and out. So I don't know if there was anything that, I mean, we went to like, obviously reverb is more of like a concept even than a, like we went, you know, probably a little bit more big pictures stuff on that. Um, But there was nothing really that we're like, crap, I wish we could have got this one in. So I guess there's no season. There's no season two. <laughs> so going back to the TED talk, it's the kind of thing that I think thrusts people who have a certain level of experience uh, and passion for a subject. And it could be educational. It could be social. It could be activism. It covers a lot of ground. But it, it, the one thread that throw, flows through that is I think that it encourages people who don't public speak to public speak. And I, and I want, because, because you want to be a part of it rather than like, should I do it? It's like, well, I have to, it's a Ted talk. I'm, of course I'm going to do it. Next thing you know, you're doing it. Right. Was that the beginning of this Wait, kind of, you new- were there, you were there in London and I had a different, I remember I, you were the first person that I, that you were like my first guinea pig audience because I had a different Ted talk in my mind. This is going back to 2000, early 2014. And you were upstairs for me in London in the studio. And I was like, and you were like, all right. And you always just been like that with me. Like, oh, right, let me see. What do you got? Like, what are you going to do? And I was like, oh, uh, okay. So I like set up this elaborate setup. And I was going to do something with like, I don't know, like samples and show people making it. And I, it was just like at the moment, I was 20 seconds in doing it for you. I was like, this sucks. Apologizing already for the thing. I was like, this is going to be so boring. If I can't even keep Zane's attention, he knows how this works. <laughs> What am I going to do? So, so that's right. So that's when I really switched it up and it was like, it was just a lot. That was all. It was just a lot. You were taking, you were doing exactly what I was just saying, which was you were, you were stepping into an opportunity and feeling the pressure of doing a TED talk rather than just doing the thing that you know the best and you can really talk about the best. Yeah, I was trying to be some combination of like MacGyver and like Bill Nye. It was just so, <laughs> you so were, dumb. <laughs> you were, I think you were trying to build an AKS 1000 like on the stage. like with On the stage yeah. out of two potatoes and some like tripwire. <laughs> What's interesting about it is that is that I remember that too. But I, and I remember you being very nervous, but I understood why I'd be incredibly nervous. That's my point. It's a big deal. And, and since then, I feel like you've become not only more interested, but more comfortable discussing your process and leaning into the process itself. You were genuinely quite quiet and weren't big big on being interviewed before that, um, I feel like, unless it was your own music. Was that sort of the start of your like, huh, there's something I can really gain out of being a part of the conversation, not just making the music that leads to the conversation? I definitely, I think when I started out, there were kids in my class and kids I was friends with that were like really amazing at an instrument. They could like shred ridiculously well or something. It was obvious like he's going to be a guitar player. He's going to do it. Like I wasn't 
like I wasn't good enough at anything that there was like a signpost saying like go this way. I wasn't any pr prodigy, so I just I didn't even know if I was gonna make music. I just knew I wanted to be around it. So I I wrote for metal fanzines. I wrote for I did record reviews for like on the go and like hip hop fanzines. I interned at Rolling Stone when I was like twelve, thirteen, fourteen. So there's always been this side of my brain that's been as much fascinated music appreciation as somebody who who also makes music so this is this is kind of like this show is probably the best use of all those loves and 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 manages to work them together because you're like i get to talk to paul mccartney and like geek out over mellotrons and the drums from tomorrow never knows but then we take like some little moog thing synth that he wrote and turn it into a song at the end of the episode as well so it's a little bit like it's it's just like the perfect part of equal parts fan and creator or something. I'm glad you said that. That's exactly where I was going was, you know, you start out being a fan. I think everybody does, even people with this natural born gift who can pick up a guitar and instantly play like Steve Vai. Why do we always like use Steve Vai as the example of like incredible guitar players? I feel like that's always where we go. Because he played a guitar with two necks that was like this and nobody else can do that. <laughs> That's true. And he he did really shred and in that era, like you're either gonna pick Ingve or Joe Satriani or Steve Vai, and I'm gonna go Vai every time. You know, you're gonna be a fan. And then if if you're lucky, you find your way into the room and you start to find your role and what it is that you can contribute, and then your life begins ultimately. This is the perfect balance. This show, Watch the Sound, is the perfect balance of Mark Ronson the fan and Mark Ronson the player. And so one of the things I've always found interesting when I'm talking to artists is I'm very much on the side of the fan. And, and you had to play that role a little bit in this show. You couldn't just be the guy who produced Paul McCartney. You had to approach Paul McCartney with a different kind of reverence, right? Absolutely. Um, which is very natural. Like I actually don't have to really even pretend that much. I mean, it's the same thing with, it's very, it's, it's funny. Like the amount of people whose music I was really really a fan of like really important to me like not just people i was casually listen to an album josh homie q-tip uh beastie boys yeah beastie boys stevie wonder these people that i've worked with throughout my career that it's almost like it's like pinch me sh you know it's like how is this person who literally made the stuff that made me want to make music so i'm still always half geeking out I mean, at some point you got to like pull yourself together, man, and like start producing and that, that's what that's what you're there for. But interviewing someone like Denzel Curry, who's from like a new generation and completely like tearing up the rule book and doing cool shit. Like I can't really assume that he knows anything I've done, really. I mean, sure, he's might have been to a wedding. He's heard Uptown Funk. But I think that it's interesting as well, just talking to somebody for their thing. I don't know if Thurston Moore is especially well-versed in like my catalog either. Like, so it's kind of cool to go in with those people that, and just like there you're really just an uh, interviewer, you know? The humility is a part of, of anyone who knows you well becomes accustomed to your unique brand of humility. And at first, it, it, it's, you put the human humility, even though I know that that's not a hybrid word. Humor, humorality. That's pretty yeah, good. I, was going, I went for it. And you did it. But the humility is, is, is real. And so I, it makes sense when you say, you know, for me, it's, you know, slipping back into fan mode was natural. So let me ask you this. At what point, and maybe it, it, it never will, but at what point did, did you stop feeling like an imposter or a pretender when you're in a room with incredible musicians, maybe early on in your career and you're recognizing, wow, 
you know, I had this opportunity here, somehow found myself in here. I'm not a fan anymore. Alone, I need to, I need to figure this out. I think usually it's like the first moment that you do something in the studio that you can tell they're excited about. Because like you go in the studio with Paul McCartney, like not only are you working with one of the greatest minds, musical minds of all time, producer, songwriter, arranger, musician, all of it. You're also in the, the in the you're in the room with the ghosts of George Martin and Nigel Godrich and Elvis Costello and anyone who even produced a Paul McCartney record on top of it. That's it's like one of the that's a very intimidating place to be. So you always have a day grace period, I feel like with him. Like he like where everything in the studio looks like it's made from kryptonite and you're just like breaking and dropping and then I think you have to get on with it. And the first time that I have something that I can just tell that I've like engrossed them or turned them on. Same thing with like, you know, Josh from Queens of the Stone Age. Like I, I just did something that they wouldn't have done by themselves. So now I know I'm like in the room and they're, and they're confident. We're all confident that I deserve to be here. But Can you give us an example, Mark? Like, I mean, either Paul or Josh, a, a specific example, a memory you have of working on both of those records, which are, if you're a Mark Ronson fan, a, a real production high points where you were like, oh, I got their attention and they know that, that they're in good hands. It hasn't happened yet. No, uh, <laughs> I think that, I think, yeah, there was like, actually Paul McCartney said like one of the coolest things that he was like, I, I had a, he was going to put acoustic guitar down on this song, Alligator. And I, I said, uh, I had it all mic'd up and he started playing and he was like, it sounds like an acoustic guitar, but I want it to sound like a record. Like as if you just put the needle down on the, you know, da da da. So we like ran it through this other mic and through the Fairchild and whatever. But that quote has stayed with me more than anything. And there's sort of like a bit of that. That actually, that quote from Paul McCartney is almost the ethos of of watch the sound as a show because we talk about sound is is this thing in music that, of course, in music the most important thing is always going to be the song, the vocal, the 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 performance. But then you go to that next level where you talk about arrangement sonics the kick the snare the 808 and that's the thing that makes the difference between a you know a really good song and an iconic recording like something we remember forever like when the needle goes down on track one you're like oh shit. so that 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 quote from paul um like definitely even though i hadn't thought about it before is kind of like the the you know the symbolic fortune cookie statement of the of the show almost one of my favorite episodes naturally i mean you know you, you can guess which one is one of my favorite episodes is the one about sampling is the one about um leaning into that era that really i think initially united you and i and put us on the path to friendship which was we're of a similar age we were raised around similar hip-hop we have similar tastes i love that record i love that record too what's your favorite song what's your favorite song that kind of thing so it's like you know, hearing you go and dive deep into that world with some of the people who really were there at the very beginning of it was super fascinating for me. Um, I just wanted to ask you as an individual, uh, moving forward in your production work, even today, do you still feel like you have that mentality? Like even though you're working with Queens of the Stone Age on a Queens of the Stone Age album with kick-ass players and your job is to put, add another incredible record to their catalog, do you still have that hip-hop mentality in a room like that? I think, yes. I think that the thing about it's always about drums and beat and rhythm and syncopation first. Like that's just, and that, and where it's, it's appropriate, you know, obviously like on a, on a ballad or something like that. But as far as like, yes, it's always drums. And there's like, I think that that's sort of what always gives me this sort of kindred spirit thing with someone like, Josh or people that aren't from the hip hop field, so to speak, Kevin from Tame Impala, like there's a rhythmic thing. That's why there's like 
fucking hard and, and funky and whatnot. But I think that it's weird because I'm coming back and I don't know if this is a result of doing this show or, or, or what, but I've sort of come a bit full circle in the past year and a bit or a couple of years. Like I think that coming back to the NPC and that style of production, or even if I'm doing the same stuff in Ableton, just like that hip hop feeling. I think I went so far from it for a long time because it was what I did and I didn't get my break till my early thirties, but I've been making that kind of music, you know, beat based music, hip hop, funk, whatever it was for 15 years before I made it. Isn't it safe to say that you were to some degree in the same space as Daft Punk were when they made random access memories that ultimately you can only sample so much of that at a certain point in your life. Then you want to try and make the music that you're sampling and ultimately try to see how close you can get to the source. Whether you come back like you are today is sort of, we'll get there. But that's what I sort of always felt like Uptown was about. And and even to some degree, your last album was getting to it, though that was more of a kind of electronic space, but getting to that place where it's like, hey, this is the stuff I would sample. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's funny. I, I, the first time I ever met Guy from uh, Daft Punk, it was like outside some bar in Paris. And he was like having this, like, you know, he just looked so cool, leather jacket, smoking a cigarette. And uh, I went up to him and I, I was just like, who the f- doesn't go up to Daft Punk and ask them annoying questions or say how influential they are, but it would be all, it would be stupid if I did it. And I was like, yo, I just, I can't remember what record I was talking about. This is before Random Access Memories and Uptown Funk, probably like 2010. And, and I was like, man, this sh- you made, he's like, yeah, but he's like, but you made something back to black that feels classic. Like you, you, like you make, and I was like, yeah, but I'm like, like retro guy like you literally made like the new classic by the thing and he didn't want to hear it he really just like it's funny that they were making random access memories at the time because in my head that now makes sense because he was telling me like no but you made some that really sounded classic and i I was just uh, i always thought that that was interesting because uh very like humble of him he was well he was being humble but he was also kind of he was always kind of confessing what was to come to your point he was like "Mm, you know you might think that i'm out here trying to search for this this kind of mineral that's never been discovered but i'm actually kind of more into gold and silver right now right yeah yeah i know i should have seen the signs did it get you closer to understanding what that word retro has meant to you throughout your life because I've never, and I've said this to you before, I've never considered what you do to be retro. I've called it, I've called it hip hop and funk and all those key genre words, but not retro. You make, you work in a timeless space where those, those sounds sound as good today as they did back in the sixties, seventies, eighties. It's not like you're dialing back. And now you've been able to sort of pick that apart on this series. Are you better, are you closer to understanding that yourself? Yes, I think that there's always things that I'm going to be drawn to sounds from a certain era, the way that Tommy Brennick, you know, from the Budos band, Dap Kings, Manahan Street Band, the way he plays guitars and riffs, like it sounds like someone who was raised on Steve Cropper and Wu-Tang. So like, of co- and the sound of that, I love so much. Like I'm drawn to these sounds. I have no, I didn't grow up in the 60s or 70s. I'm, it's not the sound of my youth. I have no affinity. I just, I just don't know why I'm drawn to those sounds. So there's certain stuff I always used to, you know, feel for Bruno. I mean, not that he was losing sleep over it, but it would make me angry when people go to a show and be like, yeah, it's this retro thing. It's like, because 10 incredible like t- young musicians are on stage, like jamming out, playing the time of their life. Like, I don't know if you could just say it's retro. It's just like a forgotten art form that they happen to be drawn to. But yeah, I don't, I, I used to really bristle at it. Um, and I, I used, it's, you know, like anything after a while, you're just like, some people want to call me retro guy. Like, 
That's cool. I'll just put my bell-bottom pants on one leg at a time and go make some nice music today. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the, the, the really great recurring conversations that happens through this TV series, Watch the Sound, is um, you getting to connect with Roger Lint, who is one of the, the great unsung heroes of modern music. And I think that you finally tipped the balance with this series for anyone who watches it will know now very clearly, because you're hitting us around the head with it, rightfully so. This piece of machinery and this individual is not only responsible for changing the sound of music, but has actually, it's been put into use and still to this day exists in the weekend's biggest hit record ever. Yeah, no, it's so crazy because Roger Lynn had, first of all, the Lynn drum, which was the drum machine that was used on countless 80s records and prints, of course, to like the greatest, effect using it and then he invents the first or like the one of the most popular sampler drum machines in the mpc and like it's like a completely different like genre and then the arm of music that he completely dominates with that too so it's 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 wild how his two inventions really just have their imprint on on wildly huge amount of music that we love but i just love that he embraces it because you also point out you know um a discrepancy between and, and Quest has some great things. Questlove has some great things to say about this. The discrepancy between what was built for a purpose and how it ends up being used, and the division that that created in a naive society. Really interesting moment in the series, I think, when you're talking about the SP and how, according to rumor, that was rejected by the company that made it, that it was being used in electronic music and specifically hip hop. And I love that you went there because we've talked about this off the record fans for a long time and you raised it to the surface. Yeah. And you know, because I do, I remember reading that in a book because I love the David Byrne book, How Music Works. And I loved it so much that I read all the books that he referenced in that book. So there was another book and I remember reading, I was like, I'm sure there's something about how the people that made the SP hated hip hop. And they were thinking of actually discontinuing the machine because they just, when they found out that what it was being used by Public Enemy and these things. So, and when we went time to edit, because Apple obviously has a very, very thorough fact-checking thing. You can't just say salacious rumors, like labeling people as like sort of, you know, racially insensitive. And they had to check that one. And it did check out. It was in the book that these they were quoted. They're like, yeah, we just didn't get hip hop. You know, sorry, our bad. So it's and then that spins around and Questlove really ties that to a lot of things like luxury brands that went that are kind of not very cool until they're embraced by street culture or whatever it is, things like uh, and music and hip hop, like things like Timbaland and Armagnac. I mean, sorry, Armagnac is Jay's brand, but that was a direct reaction to him uh, with the Cristal when the people from Cristal said something stupid like, oh yeah, I mean, it's cool that the rappers drink it, but that's not, it's not really uh, what, what, where we want it at. And he was like, oh really? Good, oh, okay. Stock yeah. price tumble. And, and watch me, yeah, and just watch my steps for the next three or four years. So Questlove, you know, draws the parallel to that, which is really interesting. And, and it is true. It's like there's this thing of um, that really is a common thread through our show, which is the happy accidents. Like something comes out and everybody says, uh, this is kind of bullshit, this drum machine, or it's going to replace drummers and musicians or like 
you know, throwing their arms up in the air. And then someone like Prince, a genius comes along, uses it in a, in the, almost the wrong way from which it was intended, tunes the snare down so it sounds crazy. And then it's just incredible. And now we're still using it on records 40 years later. Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah, that's a happy accident is a real running thread of our show too. One of the most kind of interesting episodes focuses really entirely on the process of happy accidents, the tool is auto-tune. And I think that one of the biggest misrepresentations of autotune, and Charlie XCX you know, really sums this up well in, this, in the show, is that it's used to create perfection, but actually it leads you into places that are imperfect, that encourage a creativity which couldn't exist in the conscious space because when we go there melodically and consciously, we only draw really references upon what we know. X amount of notes over X amount of years over X amount of records heard. It all comes from the same folder. The audio, the auto-tune experience takes you somewhere else you can't possibly invent, right? Did you learn that yourself making the show? I think I did. I mean, I learned so much because when people start to talk about their own process, it's really like people like Charlie XCX, like it's not just like, oh, I know why it sounds like that. It's not so technical. It becomes really soulful because, oh, I understand now why they had to use that or why that touches a part of them that they couldn't access without it. It's not like, oh, I just threw this on because it's trendy or because it helps me sing better. And I think hearing or T-Pain the way that he just heard a splash of it on a, on a TV ad with a JLo song was like, I can't stop until I find this thing. This is what I want my voice to sound like. And he could really sing. Like you realize like all these people have these like weird idiosyncratic tics that led them to making this sound. So it does make you re like fall in love with it a little bit more. We've heard your vocals splattered in varying shapes on albums before. If you haven't heard the intro to Mark's album, It Comes to Fuzz, then you should. That's a special example of that. Mm. Hearing you sing on autotune was beautifully awkward. And, uh, and I, I mean, just a simple question. How, was that, how did that experience feel in the moment? All of these episodes end in a song. So with sampling, DJ Premier is such a big part of that episode that he just made a track and Wale rhymed over and it's a great song. I have nothing to do with it. There's different, like, you know, uh, different songs for different episodes. For autotune, I was like, well, if the point of this episode is that one of the points of autotune is it can make someone who's not naturally a singer, then, like, I just have to put myself up to the challenge and actually, like, be the person that sings yeah, this song. Yeah, because Charlie ain't having it, by the way. In a very candid moment, on the spot when you talk about it and don't make it clear that you are setting yourself up to do it. She's like, and I quote, are you fucking kidding me? Are you throwing that on me right now? And that's, that made me laugh. Yeah. So, and also because, you know, with all love to my engineer in LA at the time, he, when I sing the first time with Charlie, he had the wrong setting on it. I mean, if you haven't, it's honestly one of the most painful musical things you could ever have to watch on television. Yeah, Charlie has no, she has no poker face during that experience. And this is somebody who has enormous respect for you, but in that moment. No, she leaves the studio out of embarrassment. Yeah, she's she's sweating for me. It's so bad. So I was like, okay, so I think the only way to redeem myself is to do this song at the end of this episode. So, and it was really, it was kind of amazing because really, I wrote the song with Elsie, who co-wrote Late Night Feelings, Nothing Breaks Like a Heart, and she has such lovely melodies. And 
Of course, I could write a song and sing it myself with the guitar, but I could never dream of reaching the heights and the arc of the melodies she writes. So what was so lovely about having the auto-tune was that all of a sudden I could, yeah, I could, I could kind of like carry these melodies and it was like, you know, it was listenable. Reaching out to people and asking them to be involved in a TV show, for a lot of people w would think that would be very straightforward for you. It's hard. It's, it's challenging because no matter what your relationship is with Dave Grohl, you may know him, you may not, or Josh Homme, he may be your friend, he may not be, Charlie, similar thing, Quest. You're asking for people's time and commitment and, and in an area they're not familiar with that, that has you attached. Like, hmm, what's this TV show Mark's working on? Yeah. Dave Grohl's like, I have seven TV shows already. Do you mind? Yeah. yeah. He, well, yeah, he's like, I make, I make my own punditry moments, thanks. Um, but you got him involved and, and you know, it was, it was a cool hook to it. Now we know how, you know, remix coupons. That's a new thing. A lot of people are starting to hand those out. You've invented a new trend. Um, did you, I mean, it'd be stupid for me not to, to, go, to get granular on that. Did you, you, hand, you hand wrote it or you typed it out? So we were really, we were wrapping the episode and we had wanted Dave Grohl for the Distortion episode and for Drum Machines because he's just like one of the grooviest drummers and I wanted to know if Drum Machines, if that was something that he was ever, you know, whatever part of his plan growing up. So it, it was getting on and the Foo Fighters were putting their album out and we just like, it just I just like, well, hey, what if I, I didn't know him, but Mark Monroe, who is one of the producers and directors of, of our doc made us uh, Sonic Highways, which is incredible. And I, I was like, just tell him I'll do a, I'll do a, like a remix for him or something. Like, and I was like, well, what if he doesn't need a remix? He said, you know, the Foo Fighters are doing very well. It's just like, I just thought maybe it would be an added bonus. And then he came right back and was like, cool. About three minutes later, I got a call from management. Like, uh, we'd like you to do making a fire. Like I was like, oh, I guess this is official. I guess it's real. That was amazing. And, and listen, I, he's so great. As you know, he's so great talking about music. It's so soulful. He's so entertaining as well that uh, it was worth, you know, 10 remixes. Um, I, I didn't really know Dave at all. Like he reminded me of how of a like I kicked him out of the studio when he came one time into the Crash the Queen session. It was like the first time we were doing vocals. And I was like, I was like, Dave Grohl, like rock legend, get the f out of here. Why? Because it was like the first day we were doing vocals and Josh was like really in a rhythm and it like hit something. And it like, I'm such a fan of Foo Fighters, Nirvana. Uh, uh, it was not pleasant to have to ask Dave Grohl nicely to leave the session. But you haven't answered the question. Why? You can, you, someone can be in a groove in the booth recording great vocals and someone cannot disrupt that situation. Why did you have to ask Dave to leave? Because it was the first, I think we were doing a, uh, maybe Villains or Fortress, like a very like personal song on the record. And it was like the first time Josh had really found his that emotional place to get to, to sing that record. We had tried it a few times. And I think Dave and Alison Mosshart were maybe like next door, like 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 getting jolly and just like came into you like, what's up, everybody? And I was like, <laughs> that's why. Well, that's a good reason. And did you actually say, get the f out? You have to joke with that, right? You can't be serious and be like, Dave, I need you to leave. You gotta be, find a way for him to get the message. Because the thing about Dave Grohl is, he's the nicest guy in rock, quote unquote. And he is, and he's a lovely dude. But he's still Dave fucking Grohl. Like at the end of the day, you can't tell Dave Grohl to get the f out of the studio. Well, I think at the beginning, they were next door at the, making their record uh, with Greg Kirsten at East West and we were at United. And I think like, 
I was like the newbie. And at that time, I like to probably dress a little too involved for going to the studio. I think Dave liked to, was like hazing me. He was just testing how he could push me in like every now and then come by with like three pairs of basketball shorts and be like, do you ever wear shorts? Like, what do you like? Like, it was like a funny, it was, it was funny. And then I was like, I don't know if this guy even likes me, but uh, I think he was just like hazing the new guy a little. But no, at that moment, when you're the producer, like, it doesn't really matter who it is. Like, your job is to just, like, fortress your guys, the studio, protect the artist, protect the vulnerability, all this stuff at any cost. So, unfortunately, like, even if it was, you know, Dave Grohl, Stevie Wonder, whoever would have come in at that moment, I would have had to be like, please, please come back. Yeah, I've seen you in that space where the really serious dedicated you know approach to getting the right emotional result comes out that that side of mark where it's like hey the humor humility thing is not here today like this is my job i know what i need to do can you give us another example where you knew you had magic you knew you had lightning in a bottle you had something special and you had to build a fortress in that moment a lot of the artists that I work with, I would say most of them, and this goes for a lot of, all of, all of our great, our favorite singers and people who make music are like, especially emotionally complex, sometimes fragile people because that comes out in the music and that's why we love them so much. So um, your job as a producer when you're there really is is to be this safe place. You know, maybe it's, Lady Gaga, who you know, like up until the moment that she got into the studio that day was chased by three paparazzi in her cab ride and probably 17 kids waiting outside at the studio. And she, like the minute she comes in, the studio door closes. It's like that has to instantly feel like this safe place where creation happens and someone can channel their most vulnerable, honest shit and not be worried that, about anything else. And for, for most people who make music, that is their kind of happy place in some ways. So, I yeah, I mean, all, all these records that I've ever worked on, there's a bit of this, you're there to to be like sort of this sort of protector in a way. And yet probably the most vulnerable record you ever made, and that's not to create sort of a hierarchy because, I, you know, I'm a big fan of Joanne and I know what that album means to, to Gaga, but I think everybody also recognizes the, enormous honest value in Amy's record. And that's a really moving moment. I've heard that story from you personally on and off the record before. And every time you tell it, I get emotional because I can't to this day tell, I don't know if you can, from the way you tell the story, whether Amy was aware of what she was pulling out of herself in that moment and was just trying to protect herself or whether it only became apparent later on through that magic of subconscious creativity that she was digging somewhere very, very deep that would ultimately change the course of her life. Yeah. Well, yeah, we were walking down the street in New York. I'm actually in my old studio where, where I met Amy. This was like the first day she came up here and played me a bunch of songs on a nylon string guitar. And uh we the, on the second or third day the first you know the first day we wrote back to black and we had a good rhythm back to black was the first song that we wrote together but really for that one i i gave her the piano 
thing on a little CD disc, man. And she took that and the headphones and went in the back room and just kind of scribbled for, you know, an hour. Yeah, she took she took this piece of paper in the back and she uh and she wrote uh she wrote the lyrics to back to back and i think she probably in an hour and came back in the studio and look at all the love hearts just quickly we got to, i just got to focus on that for a second i mean look at all the the exactly the iconography around there the love hearts and whatnot and that song is about i mean it is a love song that's what's really tragic about it right is that it's it's a it's a classic unrequited love song which is the hardest of all to write i think yeah and look at all yeah. but, but look at all the love hearts there it's clear what the intention of that song was it wasn't like a I'm I'm leaving you song. It was like a please come back song. I got to get this shit in a museum. I don't even deserve to be having this. And now I'm looking at like literally as she was writing the first lyrics and you're right with the hearts and it's like, it really is like a, a look into her mind at that moment and what she was feeling. This is so wild. Well, she just, then she wrote this chords to the jazz standard, Mr. Magic on the other little corner and then this guy Bronk has his phone number that she must have like met in the club the night before. It's just, it's really, it's such a, yeah. In the moment when you see that footage and the way you describe it, she's just, she's all business. She's like, I love it. Let's do it. Laying it down, done. Yeah. And I think that what the real sort of hard thing to acknowledge as a fan, little, I mean, I don't know, Amy, but as a fan, I think millions of people feel this way is that, she was so good at kind of for a long time presenting the music in a certain way and hiding the love hearts on the page and hiding all the stuff that was going on around the words. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do. I mean, when we came out with Rehab too, it was because she was just telling me the story about how her family came over and tried to make her go to rehab. And she was like, no, no, no. And I just thought the way she said it and delivered it had like a cadence. It sounded like a song. So she, so we went back to the studio, but she was really together. Like she wasn't doing any drugs. She, she was, I mean, maybe she, we had, she'd have like a drink at the end of the day, but she, like if I, if this was a person who looked like they were in like a kind of bad way or whatever, I would definitely not be saying like, Hey, let's make a funny song about not going to rehab. It felt like such a closed chapter in the past that, uh, uh you know, obviously now that's why that song. I, I don't know if like what the numbers are, but I, I'm curious, like it's not one of her biggest songs, even though it's essentially her biggest hit, because now it's a little more painful to listen to that message very specifically. It's it's too it's too on the nose or direct. So Well also I think the conversation has changed. I, I and I could be remembering this wrong, but I remember when rehab came out, rehab was the thing that, you know, uh oh. Here they are in the tabloids again, off to rehab they go, you know, and, right. they, and, and at, at its harshest, and, and I didn't feel this way for, for what it's worth, but at its harshest, you got a sense that certain parts of society or certain types of tabloids or papers <clears throat> felt that rehab was a privilege. It's a privilege problem. You go to rehab, ah, oh, you party too hard, too much success, too much of this and too much of that. So when rehab came out, it, it it felt like it was sort of it it was embraced a little bit by that culture of like oh you know i don't need to go to rehab man i can party myself but it was deeper than that the show is called watch the sound and um the host creator producer 
Mark Ronson's with us right now, six episodes. Talking a little bit about drums on this on this series, drum machines, drums. You said before, and we've always talked about this, how drums are really a, a central value for everything that you do. What was one of your favorite parts about making that particular episode, that show, leaning into what was your primary and original passion? I think it's just kind of amazing to go back to the things that, that three or four years old and just realize like how much they shape you and how they're like still there. Like there was, you know, when I was three or four, my parents got me my first little kit and I'd just play along to songs on the radio or things that I liked. And it's just like how that still is a thread that is just like, I, you know, there's still nothing. Is there anything more fun than like jumping on the drums and playing drums now, even though like I suck? Like it's just, it's, there's something so gratifying about that and whether that's actually getting on a kit or chopping up a break and hitting it on the NPC pad. So, I mean, that was a lot of, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Who are you most nervous talking to during this series? As, even though DJ Premier is just like one of the coolest and most warm and 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 friendly people like he's just such a hero like there was definitely in the beginning just even being in that headquarters his studio in queens and just seeing like all the discs for you know the floppy discs for like the beats that he made up for gangstar records i mean you went full confession there you used that that opportunity you know you went full you that was your moment to come clean no pun and actually pun very much intended whoa, that's a great pun. Whoa. Come clean, Jero. You know, you you took the opportunity on the record to say, "Look, don't know if you remember this moment, but I totally jacked your." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you did, by the way. I can say this to you because, from a fan point of view, like I love that Nick Acosta record, but we all know that that's just a full a full gangster uh, tribute. And so you you know you, you you really leaned into that and were like, "Oh man, do you remember?" And he he gave you a pass. I mean, that must have been a little nerve-wracking even at the time knowing that the cameras are on and you were going to say to him like, "Okay, do you remember the time when I basically admitted that this song is very much a direct reflection of your entire being?" Yeah, but that's also amazing too that he didn't really hear himself in it that much. He probably heard like that's like when people tell me something like, oh, they really ripped you off on this track. And I hear it, I'm like, no, it's cool. Like, I don't really hear it. Like, I'm certainly not calling my lawyer. It's funny how, you know, I, maybe it's because we all see ourselves as being kind of influenced by somebody else. So maybe we don't hear it in other people. Or maybe we do. I don't know. But yeah, Primo was just, that's all. That's why I got the MPC. That's why I make, made music the way I did for the first 10 years because, like, that's how he did it. And that moment when he takes the click off the drum machine, just watching that natural reaction of, like, wait, what? Like, it just hit you in that moment, like, oh, that's the magic. He's just playing the kit. Yeah, no, that's crazy. I mean, I've never heard, I know bands that record without it, listening to the click or the metronome, of course, but I've never heard of anyone programming a four bar drum loop but not listening to the click because how would you know like it's like what's the meter it's just the craziest but that's where you get those primo rhythms it makes a lot of sense that's why we hear those beats and we've spent so much time trying to emulate those beats using the click it will the click will, will, will always hold you back 
Oh my goodness, I know. That was just I've I've tried it even since I it's just like I'm too old. I've been doing it the other way for too long. I'm never gonna get it. You talked a little bit about as we wrap up this portion of the conversation around Watch the Sound, how the show is influencing you a little bit in the studio right now. Can you just elaborate a little bit? Be good to get to create like a dot 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 effect here and try to sort of give people an insight into what you're working on creatively and where you're headed? I've been working on my own record. Been working um with Lizzo, which has been fantastic. She's incredible. Um, that's kind of, I think that's it. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of the main things. Uh, and then I'm not sure how, if there's a direct correlation between this, what happened on the show and what I've been working on. I think it just, it might've even been coincidence that the drum machine, the MPC and going back to all these things at a time. Going back into, into your studio in New York too, going back to that place where, you know, you were making music at a certain time in your life in a city that gave birth to that. Yeah, no, it's New York has an amazing energy. I mean, we know that, you know, that a lot of the music, the create most of the creative people that were here have sort of seemed to have up to gone to los angeles and los angeles is this this has this just wealth of you know creatives and stuff but new york well just it's my hometown and you know it has an energy and this studio is this place where i did i met amy diversion all like it, it was such a great period and it's it's a very i don't know it's like a, there's uh, there's energy in different rooms you, i could put all this gear in an identical room somewhere else and it's just there is juju in the walls i've always wanted to ask you that question where is home because it's been the subject of humor for us all who are friends of yours throughout the years like somewhere in the middle of the atlantic is a small atoll and that's where mark kind of calls home but like it is is new york home New York is home. I think it took me a long time to sort of figure that out by going because I have so many people I love and family in London and Los Angeles. And, you know, I could give me a studio and like a couple of core folks and I can like make anywhere work. But I started to come back to New York in the last three years off and on. And I was just getting this like pangs every time I would leave. And I was like, I think I've just got to go home. So, um, Yes, I feel like I'm home. Money making Mark Ronson, aka Mr. Grammy, aka I don't even know where that accent is from. Joining us right here on the interview series. Great to spend some time with him. Love him. The series is great. It's called Watch the Sound on Apple TV Plus. If you love his music, watch his TV show and get ready for his fitness video that he's I'm just kidding, but you could do anything, right? Thanks. 